Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Zach. I'm on staff here at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, excited to be worshiping with you. Excited to be continuing this series that we're in through the duration of the summer that we are calling Unsung Heroes. Looking at those individuals in the Bible that maybe we've heard of or, or we might have never heard of before. And as we have, are people who want to live by faith, we want to live lives of faith how can we look at their lives, their stories, and be encouraged, be strengthened, to look at their example on how we can live for our God as well? And today's going to take us into uh, the book of 1 Samuel in chapter 25 as, as we see this event that takes place in the life of David. Now, you might be thinking, how can David be called an unsung hero? Uh, he's, he's perhaps second to Jesus in terms of popularity of, of characters throughout the Bible. Any time that there's a sporting event and there's some established champion going against some upstart, we equate the story to David and Goliath. Like, let's say, for instance, a team hasn't won a Stanley Cup in 21 years and they defeat the two-time Stanley Cup champion. Uh, we, we hear about the life of David. He is famous. But what I so appreciate about David is while he is called a man after God's own heart, he shows story after story after story of not being the hero. As someone who makes constant mistakes, who, who fails on so many occasions, to see someone like David do the same, it, it brings so much hope and encouragement to me. And today we're going to look at a story where David is not the hero. It kicks off in 1 Samuel chapter 25 and verse 1. It says this. It says, Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him at his house in Ramah. And then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. It, so it, just a, a quick little throwaway verse here, but, but there's so much packed inside of this. First, Samuel has died. And, and if we're missing the significance of who Samuel is, uh, just go to the top corner of uh, this passage uh, where it says First uh, Samuel, the book that we're in. Samuel's significant enough to lend his name to this book that we're reading. But more than that, his life was one of of constant devotion to God. He, he was a prophet. He represented God to the people. He, he was constantly pointing Israel back to this God who loved and cared for them. He was the spiritual advisor to the nation. And in particular, he was the spiritual advisor to David. And we get to this, this instance of David's life where it says that he's out in the wilderness of Paran. This is a man who has been called king by God. God has selected him to be king over his people. Why is he off in the wilderness? Well, the king who was before David, a man named Saul, who turned away from God, hasn't gotten around to giving up his power or his position yet. He's a man who's been replaced by David, and yet he uh, wants to hold on to his throne so much that he's actually seeking to kill David. He has turned away from God, and now he's turning on this one that God has selected to the point where David's been on the run, hiding out with, with just a small group of men who are faithful to him, nowhere near this life that it looks like that he ought to have had. Instead of uh, being a king, he's a refugee. Instead of being in a palace, he's, he's in the wilderness. 
instead of leading the people for God, the one who was helping them lead, the one who was helping point people to God, well, that one is now dead. This does not seem like the life that David has signed up for. He's out in the wilderness of Paran. He's, he's by a city uh, called uh, Maon. And, and while he's out there, he, he's, he seems to select this, reason, uh, this region for a reason. It's an area that was uh, often victim to raids from the Philistines, Israel's enemy. They would come to this area and attack shepherds and steal property and attack uh, homes and, and small villages. And so David goes to this area. It seems that while he's not able to be king on the throne, he's still going to act like a king and protect his people. And that's what he does with his group of men. They, they are ensuring that none of that happens. They're protecting, uh, his, he's protecting his people in this region. And it gets to the point where uh, it, it's, it's in the calendar year where, where sheep would be sheared and, and with that comes this massive festival. So David sends his men to go and talk to this wealthy man in this region, a man named Nabal. Now, a little side note, if you're ever flipping through the Bible trying to come up with, with child, uh, like baby names or anything like that, don't land on Nabal. Uh, for one, he's not the hero of the story. And for two, his name literally translates to foolish. Uh, that's a hard situation to try to explain. Here's my child foolish. It's not going to work out well. But Nabal is this wealthy man in this area. David and his men just helped protect him. He didn't lose anything while David was there. They, they kept him safe. They kept his property safe. And he's getting ready to throw this massive festival. And David sent some men to him to see, can we have just a small portion of food? It seems like a simple enough request, right? It's, it's an exchange, goods for services. You have this incredible festival that you're planning. We just helped protect you. Can we get a little bit of food in, in payment for that? But there's more going on than this. Because we're so removed from the culture, we might miss a, a part of this. God's law, the, the societal norms at the times, when there was a festival, it was a time to care for those who were less fortunate, care for those who were needy among you. It was a great shame if there was someone nearby you who was hungry while you were throwing a feast. And so not only is it, is it basic human decency to, to repay this man who's, who's offered this needed service for you, but society dictates you must care for this person. And yet that's not what Nabal does. David's men comes to him, asks for food, and this is his response in 1 Samuel 25, verse 10. It said, and then Nabal answered David's servants, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I don't know where? There's a, there's a lot going on in Nabal's response to, to David. First of all, we, we might read that as pretty straightforward. Oh, he just doesn't know the story of how David has been protecting him. That's, that's not the case at all. He says, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? This is like those tropes that we see in every single detective show of all time where uh, the, the suspect is there and he utters the name of the victim and the detective says, I never said the victim's name. And then that's how he incriminates himself. Uh, no one ever mentions David's dad this entire time. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? You know who he is. 
But then this little sentence of there, there's lots of servants who are breaking away from their masters. Nabal's clearly aware of what's going on in the life of David. He's, he's essentially saying, uh, you're not the king, you are running away from the king. You are breaking away from Saul. There's a lot that's happening in Nabal's response. He's ignoring what society dictates that he does and care for the needy around him. He's ignoring just basic human decency of this man offered a much needed service to you and you are ignoring that. And he's clearly aware of what David does. Later on in the story, one of Nabal's uh, servants mentions, we've tried telling Nabal about this, but he won't listen. And now he's offering him, uh, he's saying something so shameful to him you aren't the king. You aren't God's chosen one. You're essentially just a runaway servant. That's all you are. Nabal lives up to his name. And this message gets back to David. They return him. They tell him what Nabal says. And David's response is strap on your swords. He has more men than Nabal has. He has more weapons, more training and he's going to make Nabal make the ultimate price, pay the ultimate price for this shame that he's brought upon him, for his unwillingness to help. There will be blood for this. But then Nabal's wife, Abigail, hears of what is happening. Now, you, you read the text, uh, Abigail is everything that Nabal isn't. Uh, back in verse 3, it says, uh, The woman, Abigail, was discerning and beautiful, but the man, Nabal, was harsh and badly behaved. And Abigail hears what has happened, has heard what David has done for her household, has heard what her husband has said to this man, has heard that David is coming armed and out for blood and she springs into action. The, the, the passage says, with much haste, she starts gathering up food to give to David and his men to fulfill what they asked for and a little bit more. And here we get to see Abigail's example of faith that she gives us. Abigail's faith provide, uh, gives her such great courage. Now her courage comes out a little bit differently. Abigail has faith that gives her courage to be disobedient. Now, I, I got to set that up. I, I don't want anyone to go home and like, don't, don't tell your parents, like, Zach said I could disobey you out of faith. That, that's, that's not what's going on. This is disobedience in a context. Now, Nabal said, I will not give food for David. Abigail does give food. That, that is disobedience, but she is doing so to do what is right in God's sight. She's disobeying her husband, going against what he is doing wickedly and foolishly to do what is right for God. This is God's chosen king. She's coming to support and care for him. But also this is what God's law dictates. You are to care for those around you at feast times. She's fulfilling what God's law calls uh, uh, her to do. So I guess to put it more accurately, Abigail has faith to disobey her husband, to follow what is right in God's sight. She's caring for the, his king. She's fulfilling what his law requires. But this takes great courage for her to do so. She has this comfortable life, this, this wealthy man as her husband, and she goes against him to follow God. 
She takes great courage to step outside of, of what is easy to do to do what is much more difficult to do. She is uh, trying to follow God rather than uh, remain in her comfortable life, to pursue justice rather than be in lockstep with her husband who is acting so foolishly. This takes great courage that can only come from her faith that she has in her God. It's not the main point of the text, but Abigail's life and her response to David that we'll see in a little bit uh, gives us a, a great example of how we too can, can come alongside those who are acting in ways contrary to how God would have us live. How we too can respond to people who, who we care about, who are in our lives that are acting foolishly. Of how to respond to being in an ab- abusive relationship of how to offer gentle correction to those who need it as she will offer to David in a bit. And she does all of this out of great courage that she has to go and disobey her husband in order to follow what God would have for her out of her tremendous faith that she has in that God. To care for this king. But we also see in this passage that Abigail goes against that very king. And what courage must that have taken? This man armed, out for blood, and Abigail goes against him. Because it isn't just Nabal that he's looking to get revenge on. This, these are David's very words uh, that he says in, in verse 21. And then David had said, surely in vain I have guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed to all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by the morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. So, so what is David saying? Nabal has treated me so poorly. He did not acknowledge who I am. He did not acknowledge what I did. He, he called me essentially a runaway servant. If I leave one male in his household alive, I have made a mistake. He is he's bent on revenge, seeking blood, seeking uh, retaliation to how he has been treated. That is the mindset that he is in, looking to kill well beyond those who have done poorly against him. That is how Abigail finds him, in that spot, seeking revenge. She puts herself in the line of fire and all the courage that that must have taken to go and confront him. We'll pick it up in verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak to your ears and hear the word of your servant. David's armed. He has his men with him. He's looking to kill Nabal and every male in his household to get revenge for how he was treated. And Abigail comes up and treats him as you'd expect a king to be treated, with reverence, bowing before him. And this great humility that she takes on, on me alone be the guilt. 
Now she, she wasn't there. She didn't hear any of this. She has done nothing wrong in the story, and yet she's taking this guilt upon herself because it's really important that David gets out of that mindset, bent on revenge, looking for blood, before he can hear any sort of reason, before uh, Abigail can, can try to explain what's going on in the situation, he needs to be calmed down. He acknowledges, uh, she acknowledges he is king. She acknowledges that he was wronged and it does all of this before he, she can reason with him because this is what she says next. Let my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal for as his name is, so he is. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But your servant did not see the young man of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as, uh, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because the Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you shall live. So a, a lot there. Again, Abigail goes, calms him down so that she could reason with him, brings him the food that he requested. But if all she did was bring that and then turn around, that doesn't placate David. He feels wounded. His pride is wounded. He is seeking revenge. So Abigail calms him down and then reminds him of something vitally important, that if he was to go about this, he would be guilty. Verse 26 says, of blood guilt and by saving by your own hand. Now, what what does that mean? The blood guilt part is pretty obvious. He wants to go and he wants to kill every male in that household. That's not something that anyone should be doing, let alone the king, let alone God's king over Israel, over God's people. David, is this the precedent that you want to set? Whenever someone goes against you, whenever someone does something that you don't like, you go out and you kill every male that's there? Is that what God's king would do when you are upset? Is that what you ought to be doing? And isn't this what got Saul to lose his throne? That when things did not go his way, he started to become murderous. David, aren't you on the run in the wilderness because of that very fact that he is trying to kill you? Is that the king that you want to be? Guilty of this blood guilt. But the other part of it, I think, is more significant, of trying to save by his own hand. Nabal has identified himself as an enemy of David, of not going, uh, not going along with what God has put in place, not acknowledging David for who he is, not following God's law like he's supposed to be doing. And David's reaction is not to see that vengeance is the Lord's. It's not to see that God will keep his promises to him. Instead, he tries to take things into his own hands. He's trying to bring justice in a perverse way, but trying to make things right. And, and doesn't he, as the king, have the ultimate authority here? Isn't he the one who's supposed to make things right? But again, this is what got Saul to lose the throne. Saul was waiting, and he got tired of waiting on the Lord, so he took things into his own hand and was told, on this day you have lost 
the throne. Time and time again, he has tried to do what he thought was right rather than follow God's way. And he is king. He alone has the authority, the power, the right to act. And that has led to him losing the kingdom, losing the throne. David, do you want to follow in the footsteps of this man that you are replacing? Do you want to lose this throne before you have even sat on it? Because by trying to take the saving on your own hands, that is the route that's going to happen. You are turning away from God. You are setting yourself up as the one who is bringing out justice and it's perverse and it is wrong and it's not trusting in the promises of God. And this, this lesson gets all the more heightened as you look at 1 Samuel 25 in its context. In, in chapter 24 and in chapter 26, uh, the chapters on both sides of this one, we find two very similar stories. David on the run from Saul in the wilderness finds Saul twice, once in verse 24, once in verse 20, uh, chapter 24, chapter 26. He finds him alone. He finds him vulnerable. He finds him in his own hand and in his own power. Isn't this the man who has made it to where he cannot go home? Isn't this the man who is sitting on the throne that God has given to him? Isn't this the man that's making it to where his men are hungry and he's having to ask others for food? With one thrust, he can end all of this. Things could be righted. He can go and do what God has told him he will do. He can go back home. He can lead the people. He can get rid of this man who has turned away from God. With one small movement, he can do that, and yet he doesn't, both in chapter 24 and in chapter 26. He does not take this into his own hand. He trusts that God has said, I will make you king. I will protect you. I will fight against your enemies for you. He trusts in the promises of God and he, and he spares Saul twice. But he doesn't do that in chapter 25. When there is an enemy against him, he takes matters into his own hands. He tells the men to strap on their swords and he goes against his own words. When he faced Goliath. When he was talking to this giant of a man in front of him, he said, uh, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is the Lord's. But here, this man has offended him, called him a runaway servant, didn't follow God's law, and he is out for blood, looking to save himself by the sword not seeing the battle as the Lord's, but the battle is his. He is king after all, so why shouldn't he? And yet Abigail comes and lets David know what this path will do. You will be guilty of blood guilt and of trying to save by your own hands. The very reason why you were made king is, is your predecessor did these things. If you continue down this route, you will lose the throne before you even get it. She goes in front of this man whose blood is boiling, weapons in hand, and she tells him this truth. What courage that must have taken. Let's finish out her speech to this king. Verse 29, 
Abigail continues, she says, if men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of your God. Bound in the bundle of the living care of your God. In the lives of your enemies, he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to the, all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. When the Lord has dealt with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail calms David down with humility, despite doing nothing wrong, helping him to see reason, then reasons with him, helps him see that if you do this, if you continue with this plan, you will lose the throne before you get it. And then she reminds David of the promises that God has for him. First, there's the care of the, of the Lord, that beautiful phrase that, that I, I read and, and, and reread. Just, I, I, I love it so much. The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. This is the care that God has for David. But more than just that, there's the protection. He will deal with your enemies, David. She reminds David of the promises God has made to her. Chapter 25 starts off by telling us that Samuel has died. The, re the religious advisor of the nation, the religious advisor of David is gone. And the very first opportunity David has to turn away from God, to take mat matters into his own hands, to try to work salvation for himself, of thinking that he knows better than what God has for him, of doubting the promises that God has made, the first opportunity David has, he forgets all of that. He turns away from God. And yet Abigail comes in courage from her great faith, goes to this man who is set on murder and calms him down, reminds him, or lets him know of what will happen if he continues and reminds him of the promises of God. In other words, after Samuel has died, Abigail takes this role of a religious advisor to the life of David. And because she does this, she steps out in courage to go against her husband, to go against David, because she, her faith produces in her this courage, we see this traumatic turn of events in verse 32. Then David said to Abigail, blessed be the Lord and God of Israel who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. Because Abigail's faith and the courage that that produces in her, she goes and confronts this man and helps him not lose his throne before he even gets it. And on the day that, that David does go, after Saul dies, David becomes king. On that day where David do, does become king, well, Abigail is right there with him. Because soon after this at the feast, uh, Nabal hears of how close he was to dying if it wasn't for Abigail's intervention. And the passage says, his heart dies within him. But Abigail is not widowed for very long as she soon remarries David. 
Abigail is this woman of incredible faith, and that led her to being courageous, to speak truth about her husband. She, she makes no, no uh, means of hiding the fact that he has acted foolish, that he deserves punishment. She speaks that truth courageously. She speaks truth to this man who's set on killing this man who would be her king, she goes against him. And in each of these, she faces great risk and danger as she goes against both uh, Nabal and against David in order to do the right thing and follow after her God. How might we too find courage in our faith? Where might we go against what's easy for us to do in order to do what is right? to follow God rather than to preserve comfort in our lives, to pursue justice rather than remaining silent? Where might we have faith that helps us to courageously step out and follow God rather than anything else? Where might we speak up against those who are turning away from him, who are doing what is wrong in God's sight? This could even be a friend as it was for Abigail, a spouse or an enemy? Are we willing to step out in courage and faith like she was to bring about this sort of correction? And I don't mean telling people how we think things ought to be done. They're clearly doing it the wrong way. No, I'm talking about where are people going away from what God's will is, what fits with his character and his purposes? Are we willing to speak in those moments? Do we have the courage that can come from a faith who knows our God, who knows what he's like, knows what he has done, knows what he will do? Do we trust in his promises like Abigail does? Are we willing to speak up and challenge those who are going against them? Where might we be used like Abigail to uh, give hope to others, a little correction that can save them from destruction? Are we willing to be used like God has used Abigail in this important way? And, and on the flip side of that, when, it, when someone is giving us that correction, are, are we willing to listen to it? Or are we more like Saul rather than David? And in all of these, it's remembering how Abigail presented this correction Maybe some of us have that courage part down. We can speak our mind. We can tell people what's what, but we don't do it in the way that Abigail did, with humility and gentleness. A faith that produces courage, but to use that courage in the same way that Abigail does, gently. Abigail's this woman of incredible faith. She, she goes against her husband. She goes against her king. But she does so because she's following after her God. Unwavering in her faith, she does what's right, even at great risk to her life, to her comfort. She does this because following her God is greater and any promises that she can find out in, in this life fall so much short of what God has promised hers as he holds his people in the comfort of the Lord, in the bundle of the comfort of the Lord. We, we've had this uh, recurring theme going through all of these. As we look at these unsung heroes, these individuals, we, we keep coming across this, this same idea that while they are acting in this incredibly heroic way, 
that they aren't the heroes of these stories. Abigail is courageous. She acts out of her faith, but she is ultimately, as David acknowledges, sent by God. This is another story where God is the hero. He sees this king of his about to lose his throne. He sees this king of his on a path towards destruction. And so he raises up someone to bring him back from that pain, from that hurt, from that destruction. This is what our God is like. He doesn't just do this with David, but he does this with all humanity. That we are all like David, people who try to work salvation out for ourselves. We think that we know what is best to do. We can make things right. We can act and bring about the the purpose and cause that we think that needs to be done. And yet we constantly go down paths that lead to our pain and hurt and our destruction. We constantly turn away from this God as we think that we know what's better for our lives. And on the brink of destruction, God sends someone to bring us back. We are people who are shaped by the story of the cross. That we are people who rebel against God. We have earned death for our lives. And and because of that, God himself has come to take the penalty of that, to take this death from us onto himself. His actions say something similar to what Abigail has said. On me alone be the guilt. When Jesus came to this world, he lived a perfect, sinless life while we were in rebellion, while we are like David who continue to go against this God. He came and took this death. On him alone be the guilt. And because of that, we can live for him. Because of that, we can follow after him because this punishment has been paid. We are people who have been shaped by the death of Jesus on the cross. And we remind ourselves of this life-altering, world-shaking truth that Jesus has come and taken this punishment in in a variety of ways, but, but one in particular is through the taking of communion together. On the first Sunday of every month, we, we come and we, we celebrate the fact that Jesus has taken this punishment from us. It goes back to before Jesus died on the cross, he was at this meal with his disciples and he took the bread that was there and he was explaining what was about to happen. As he broke the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. That we are on the brink of destruction and yet he comes and he dies to give us life. Well, how can we trust in that? Well, he took the cup that was there and he said, this is a new covenant. This promise is by my blood. You can trust that this has happened because my death is fulfilling all of it. And so we come and we take communion together. We take a cracker to symbolize uh, his body that was broken. We take the juice to symbolize the cup, the new covenant by his blood. And all the while we think about this promise of what he has done, of what he has accomplished for us. So I want to give us an opportunity to pause and reflect on what it is that he has done, what his death has accomplished, to look at the symbols that we will take together, to see uh, the price that was paid for us to be rescued, to look at, at the grace that's been so poured out for us, to remember what it is that Jesus has accomplished. In a, in a few moments, I will pray and, and give us an opportunity to pause and reflect, and then at, at 
your, your timing, whenever you're ready, after you've had a time to, to look at what Jesus has accomplished, I invite you to come to one of the three stations that we have for communion, two in the front, one in the back. You can come up uh, as an individual or as a family and receive first the bread and you could take it at that station and then the cup and you could take it there as well. As we think of what Jesus has accomplished, what his death has brought about, the saving of us on the brink of destruction that we have caused. We give us time to pause and reflect. Whenever you're ready, come to one of these stations and celebrate the fact that we have been rescued because on him alone be the guilt. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for these stories, these individuals who live lives of faith, not perfect lives of faith, and that is why we are so encouraged by them. Because we are like David, who try to follow after you and make mistake after mistake. All of your people are like this, and so that is where we can find great encouragement, that you do not use perfect people, but you are a perfect God. Let us continue to grow in faith and follow this example that Abigail gives to us, a faith that produces courage to do what is right, to do what you would have us do, to do what is fitting in your way. We are only able to do this, only able to have faith in you, only able to have any sort of courage because of your promises. We can trust in your promises because you have kept them time and time again. You promised to save, and so you came and you did that. You promised to love, and so you came and you showed this love on the cross. You promised to care, and so you show constantly your care for your people. Let us be shaped today and every day by your Son for what he has accomplished for us, this life that is possible because of you and you alone. So it's to you that we pray.